If you'd open your Bibles with me to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6, we're going to try and wind up our current study here in decision-making and the will of God. I hope it has been practical for you. My goal is to help free some of you from that bondage of uh, somehow trying to divine secret and hidden and mysterious things in God when, when that's not what we need to spend our time on. And uh, I know that I've been caught up in those things from various times, and the Word of God speaks wonderfully uh, to it so that we can be moved to a different place. Before we get full into the study today, let me uh, remind you or at least make a point about last week. Uh, I wanted to make sure that you understood that last week's was not, study was not to say that God never leads his, peer, his people through the Spirit in intuition or promptings or even dreams or visions at times. He does. It's quite manifest in Scripture that that is reality. But that has to be qualified by Scripture. And so there's a number of things that are necessary for us to keep in mind. And the point to say, number one, is that we're not to seek those kinds of manifestations in making decisions in our ordinary lives. It's not the way that he governs our ordinary living. We're to go back to the Word of God. It is to say instead that we are to use the ordinary means that he has placed at our disposal for such decision-making. Yes, he speaks sometimes in very extraordinary ways, but that's not the norm of how we live. And third, even though God does sometimes use extraordinary means to lead us, he never does so so as to contradict or override his own word. Never. Fourth, He does not use them as means for us to ascertain what's right or wrong, what's holy or unholy, righteous or sin. It's always contained in the Word. So I'm never looking for that from some outside source. And lastly, if and when He does use extraordinary means, we're responsible to test those things. We're going to see how that works out this morning as we work through this passage, a number of passages. So... Uh, because we live this side of Pentecost, we're supposed to be living in the Spirit in a way that the Old Testament saint could not. And therefore to walk in the Spirit because we are alive in the Spirit. And that then becomes far more a natural extension of who we are than it would have under the Old Covenant. That's why we don't fall back under the way that they sometimes sought for signs and omens and things where where that's not necessary under the New Covenant. So to give a quick review of some of the things we've covered already and how God has provided for us in working through this issue of making certain decisions in our lives, uh, right out of, again, our initial passage, Deuteronomy 29.29, we're not responsible for what God hasn't revealed. We're responsible for what he has revealed. And so in that, he has freed us from the tyranny of the mysterious. My, my life doesn't have to be all wound up with whether or not I've discerned some mysterious hidden thing in God. I need to pay attention to what he has revealed and watch what he does with the rest. I don't have, I'm not responsible for those. 
And secondly, that by giving us his word, he's given us concrete truths to work with rather than human supposition or superstition or anything along those lines. Uh, The great theological statement of our day is, I feel that, which means what? No, what has God said is is what has to be important. Uh, Certainly, we'll deal again with feelings a little bit later today again. Third, that the Holy Spirit leads through wisdom. He's granted us a glorious faculty for dealing with the truth. It's called your brain. And you're supposed to use it. This is not a cult. We don't check our brains at the door and then wait for the guru to tell us what to think. That isn't the way that works. We talked a lot about the people in Berea being noble and going back and searching out what Paul had taught them so that they understood well. Do use your noggin. It really is there for, you know, it's not just a place to put your hat. All right? It's supposed to be a functioning organ within us. Fourth, that the Holy Spirit directs often through providence, most often, I would say. And in directing providence and in the affairs of life, what he's done is taken the responsibility to govern matters, to make it easier for us to make some decisions and to prevent us from even having to make other decisions. There's, there's, and, and we're sometimes frustrated with this. It's fascinating. This is especially true even among us who believe in the sovereignty of God. We really like the sovereignty of God until God closes the doors for the things that we really want. And then all of a sudden we're chafing against the sovereignty of God and treating God like he's doing something against us when he's loving us and saying, well, let me lead you by closing those other doors. I'm being really gracious to you and loving you. And we're saying, yeah, but I really wanted that. I don't want what you have for me. And that's always a struggle for us. But we come back and we we wrestle through that. Fifth, the Holy Spirit has provided leading in the counsel and and experience of others. And so much of the Bible is filled up with the experience of those who have walked with God. And we look at their lives and then we look at the, the church around us and say, hey, there's all kinds of experience of walking with God and understanding his word and interpreting it that we draw from. And That's one of the other ways that he leads us. And then sixthly, we talked about leaving impulse to the indifferent. In that, he's kept us from slavery to the subjective. We don't use impulse to determine what's right or wrong, what's righteous or or unrighteous, what's sin or what's not. That is solely consigned to the word of God. But we use, there are at times impulses that matter in the indifferent. And I thought it would be good to go back and give you two more examples of that from my own life um, this week. And it's, it's getting a little warm in here, so you're not going to mind if I do that, are you? And then, then again, I really don't care if you mind. A, except for this. I ripped that this morning when I sat in the chair. I'm not happy about that. Uh, in my own experience, it is more often true than not that I didn't know that an idea or an impulse or something was the Holy Spirit until after it proved out. That's when you find out, in looking back, in retrospect. And you, you, you just were moved to do X, Y, or Z, and you did it, and it falls within the bounds of what's permissible in Scripture, and then you realize how wonderfully God has ordered your steps, how he has moved and, and worked. That's, that's most often the case in my own life. And the Holy Spirit leads most naturally when we are immersed in his word and seeking to live 
under the constant, um, conscious, deliberate dependence upon the Holy Spirit in carrying out his revealed will in our lives. And then he, he moves and he directs and takes us places. Another example of that that may be useful to you and something that you can use perhaps in your own life is that it's been my experience. I was just discussing this with another pastor on, on Friday. Um, he mentioned that he was going through a particular trial in his life and as we had lunch. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. Are there a number of people in your church right now that are facing the similar situation? And he said, yeah. And I said, that's how God leads you to pray. Because, you see, there's no temptation that has taken us, but such as is common to man. And I know that when I'm undergoing a particular trial or a particular temptation, uh, if, if I could steal a page from John Piper's book and rewrite it just a little bit, it would be this. Don't waste your temptation. If you're being tempted, then pray. But don't just pray for yourself. Pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. They're enduring these same kinds of trials. And this is the Holy Spirit leading. This is him working in us as a body. If you're wrestling with fear, you can be pretty well assured there's other people in this congregation wrestling with fear. If you're failing in a particular area or struggling with a, with a besetting sin, you can, I can guarantee you there's others in this building right now who are struggling with that same sin. We're never alone in that. We're connected together. We're organically one in Christ by the Spirit. And so the Spirit leads us in those ways, but it's amazing how we will sinfully take that thing, that, that wrestling, that, that trial, that fear, that temptation, and we'll isolate ourselves with it and just get shame and then think nobody else can possibly be wrestling with this same thing. Hogwash, I know they are. And I know some of the ugly things you wrestle with because I, I wrestle with them. And I know that when those are heavy on my heart in my own life, that dollars to donuts. There's something going on in the lives of, of others here. This is how we work together. And this is especially how God works in the pastorate, but often that stuff gets swept uh, aside. We pay attention to those things because God does work through them. But in our completing our study here, uh, I, I want to look at just two more things this morning and then we'll, we'll wrap this up. And once again, this is under the guise or under the, the umbrella uh, of the goal of recognizing the tools that he has put at our disposal and for cultivating a real level of trust and comfort in the shepherding of Christ. He is the great shepherd. He is not going to let you go. He deals with his children wonderfully. He holds us in his arm like lambs. And so we want to be aware of his shepherding and to trust that and to live in a level of freedom. Well, that takes us then to number seven in your notes. And I've titled this seventh observation, The Issue of Fleeces, Omens, and Signs. Fleeces, Omens, and Signs. And let me say, as I put that out there, as kind of a subtitle, coincidence is not necessarily divine communication. Please don't live that way. Please don't live that way. So that as a married man, if you suddenly ran into an old girlfriend from high school, is that a sign from God that you should strike up with her again and neglect your wife? No! Coincidence is not necessarily a sign of divine communication. And if you live there, you'll read all kinds of things into really stupid things. And, and the enemy who can 
arrange some coincidence. So in this, in looking biblically at fleeces, omens, and signs, he guards us from superstition. And so much superstition creeps into the church over time. I can't tell you. It's, it's just part of, of where we live. And it's one of the things that we've got to be make sure that we're on our guard for. Let me show you a biblical example of coincidence that's not a sign. So that you understand what I'm talking about. It's in Acts 27. Acts 27. You know the uh, history where we are at this point in the narrative. Uh, Paul is on his way to Rome to be tried. Uh, So this is part of the journey that's on his way there. Um, In the beginning of the chapter, uh, chapter 27, it was decided that they should sail for Italy, and so they delivered Paul and some of the other prisoners over to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And then they embarked in a ship uh, of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia. And as they begin to sail along, they're struggling. The ship isn't doing very well. They're running with some contrary winds. But So they've wasted a lot of time in their voyage, and heading all the way to Italy is probably not a good idea. Now, Paul is an experienced sailor, and bear in mind that he has spent three days and nights in the deep in the Mediterranean Ocean. He's been through this. He's sailed the Mediterranean a lot in his missionary journeys. He knows the characteristics. He knows what goes on here. And so he pipes up in verse 6, Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over. This was common knowledge. You don't sail during certain times because... Certain seasons, we just got back from St. Martin, and they told us it's always good to be here when it's not hurricane season. They know when it's hurricane season, okay? So the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast, which was Easter or Passover, was already over. And so Paul advised them. He didn't get a a word from on high. He didn't get a, a vision. He simply advised them. And he said, sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, And not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. He said, in my judgment, having been this circuit before, we sail now, we get sunk, we all die. I don't like that option. So I'm advising you that we ought to do something else. Now, it's interesting. Later, the Lord is going to interrupt him and say, well, your presupposition that it was dangerous was a good one because you read the signs. However... The truth is, nobody's going to die because I have people on this boat that I intend to save, and I'm going to, I'm going to do that. That's going to happen later in the chapter. But he's using his best wisdom at this point and saying, sailing right now is dumb. So let's not do that. That's not good. But we're told that they didn't want to listen to him. Uh, matter of fact, it says the centurion, verse 11, paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And he's, he's working on the greed principle. They're businessmen. They're figuring they don't want to lose their money. They probably have a good idea that, yeah, this is safe enough because they don't want to lose their bucks in the process. And there were other reasons. The harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in. And so the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, which was a harbor of Crete, which was facing both southwest and northwest, and they'd spend the winter there. Now... This is where the ordinary stuff comes in. Verse 13. Now, when the south wind blew gently, what did they do? 
supposing they had obtained their purpose. Oh, it's a sign. The wind is blowing the way we want it to. It's a sign that we should go ahead and proceed. No, it's a sign that the wind is blowing gently. You don't read into it what isn't there. And, of course, you know the story. They go on. and They get caught in a nor'easter the way that, that Paul assumed they would. The boat ends up getting wrecked. All of the cargo gets jettisoned over sea, and they end up on, the, on a small island. Coincidence does not guarantee that it's divine communication. They all saw the coincidence. We finally have obtained our purpose. The wind is blowing just the way we want. It must be God. No, it wasn't. And that's where we've got to be careful. The other one that's important for us under this category, as we understand how these things work, fleeces, omens, and signs, is Judges chapter 6. And I want to take you there because Judges chapter 6 doesn't get read very well except for one verse that, or two verses that, that Gideon let this fleece out. Let's go to Judges 6 and look at how it actually functions. Judges chapter 6, you all know the account, at least most of you do, that this is a time when Israel is under great duress from the Midianites. And what would happen is that the Midianites were staging all kinds of raids on Israel, on the Jewish people. And those raids would consist of, they would wait till these guys had threshed out their grain or harvested their crops, and then when they had done all the hard work, the Midianites would come in and steal all of that and leave. I mean, there's no sense stealing it, you know, coming in to harvest it themselves. May as well let the, the idiots harvest it, and then they'll just get the, the thing. So this is what was going on, and they were oppressed. It was a terrible time for them. And so during this time, God raises up a man, Gideon. And he raises up Gideon for the purpose of freeing the Israelites from this Midianite bondage, from this terrible oppression they're under. Now, the, 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 the actual narrative about this begins in verse 11 of chapter 6. Now, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah. That's not Oprah. That's uh, Ophrah, although might actually be a larger shadow with Oprah. I'm not sure, but Ophrah, okay, which belonged to Joash. The Abizarite, I shouldn't have said that, I apologize, send her a note. While his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. So he's not out in the threshing floor, he's in the wine press because he doesn't want to be discovered so that they don't come and steal what he's done. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, so I want you to note first that this entire account begins with a supernatural visitation of the angel of the Lord. He's got this angel who appears to him. Now, everything starts there, okay? And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. My dad always notes, here's this guy hiding in the the wine press. He's not a mighty man of valor. He's got a real fear problem. This is not a courageous individual. And that's going to play out in the story. He's not. He's He's weak in this area. This is a problem he struggles with. And so Gideon says to him, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? And now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. He says, yeah, yeah, God's really with us. I mean, have you looked around? Now, of course, the problem was that they had fallen into idolatry. 
And God had promised them that if they forsook him and went into idolatry, he would send the enemies against them to plague them. So it's not like this wasn't already information they could glean from the the text that they did have. The law contained this information, but they were ignoring it. So he gets this supernatural visitation, and then, verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. Uh, The might of his is probably referring to the fact that he's pretty ticked off at the situation. This anger that you've got, you know. Use this for a constructive purpose. Don't sit in here and stew. You You ought to go out and fight the Midianites. But beyond that, what he does is he gives him a call and a command. The Lord turned to him and said, Now, I'm I'm calling you. Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of, of Midian. Do not I send you. A call and a command. So he's got a supernatural visitation, and he's got a divine call and command to do this work. And so Gideon responds, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. And so the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. So, a divine visitation, a call and a command, and now a promise that his presence will be with him, and that he'll have success. So he's already got three in the bag, right? It's not like he's not dealing with some pretty hefty information at this point. And he said to him, Gideon responds, well, if I've now found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. You see, he's already got this angel who's come out of nowhere. He's already gotten this call and this command to do the the work. He's already been promised that he'll have the Lord's presence with him and that he'll have success. But now he wants a sign. Okay, it's kind of like you and me, isn't it? It's like like the guy in the flood who, who, you know, when the floodwaters were rising... And, and, and a guy comes along in a, in a boat and says, hey, come on, go with us. And he says, no, I've been praying and the Lord's going to deliver me. And then the floodwaters get a little higher. It's on the second floor now. And now a guy comes by in a raft and he's, he's rowing and he says, come on, you've got to get on this. You know, these floodwaters aren't going to quit. You're going to drown. And he, he says, no, no, I've been praying and the Lord's going to deliver me. Finally, he's on the roof of the house as the floodwaters go up. And, and finally, a helicopter comes and says, you know, grab onto the rope. We'll rescue you. And the guy says, no, no, the Lord promised he'd deliver me. I'm, I'm waiting for him to deliver me. And finally, he drowns. And he gets to heaven and he says, God, what happened? I was trusting in you. And he said, I sent you a boat, a raft, and a helicopter. What else did you want me to do? I mean, that, But that's the way we are. You see, God gives us all these things and we don't take advantage of them. So... Anyway, he's got, he's not, so he asks for a sign, and here's what he asks for. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present before you. And what does God do? He said, I will stay until you return. And so, fourthly, he gives him a concession and says, Absolutely, I'm going to show you my willingness to deal with all of this. So what does Gideon do? Well, 19, he goes in the house and he prepares a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. And then he put the meat in a basket and, brought, and the broth in a pot, and he brought them uh, to, the, to the angel under the terebinth tree and presented them. Now think about this for a second. He goes in and prepares a goat. Now you've got to skin a goat, you've got to kill a goat, skin a goat, gut a goat, and cook a goat. This takes hours. And this angel, God is so gracious that he says, I'll wait until you come back. 
This is going to take three, four hours. Then he bakes bread on top of that. I mean, he's really stretching the limits here. Show me a sign. Hang around till I come back with my present. Oh, by the way, it's going to take me about four hours. And God does. God is extremely gracious. He's wonderful in how he deals with this. So he says, okay, I'll be entreated. So then he brings him this stuff. And in verse 20, the angel says, Now take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour broth over them. He's giving him a clue right there. Now he's going to get a demonstration and a clue of how miraculously God is going to work. Because when he pours the broth on, it means they're soaked up and they're not going to be, not going to be easily handled. And then, in verse 20, 21, the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes, and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Now he's got a confirming miracle on top of the other five. Right? Now he's got six going. Already got six proofs here. Gideon isn't done. So then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. And he gets a supernatural announcement of God's favor. We're up to seven. And so Gideon built an altar to the Lord, and then he goes on that night, he hears from God that he should go out and he should tear down the altar of Baal, which he does. He tears it down, but it, it, as the narrative says here, he did it at night because he was afraid to do it during the day. This guy's got a real issue with, with, with fear. So he does it at night because he's afraid to do it during the day, but he goes and he does it, and God's pleased with that. And then he gets another great kind of confirmation because the men of the town come out and they say, hey, we want to string up the guy who tore down the altar of Baal, and, and Gideon's father stands up and says, no, you shouldn't be doing anything to him he did what was right in god's eyes and so all the people rally around him so now he gets a another confirmation from his own dad and from the rest of the people and he doesn't die in this process god god preserves him so now we've got eight down and so now we go over to verse 33 now all the midianites and the amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the jordan and camped in the valley of jezreel the midianites are going to have battle but the spirit of the lord clothed gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the abizarites were called out to follow him and then he sent messengers throughout all manasseh and they too called were called out to follow him and he sent messengers to asher zebulun and naphtali and they went out to meet them so he gets a divine anointing number nine in verse um in verse 34 and then a third confirmation by all these people saying yes we believe you and we're going to come and support you let's go out and do battle now gideon says if you will save israel by my hand as you have said behold i'm laying a fleece of wool on the floor well wait a minute what, what were the 10 things you already got i mean if i was god at this point i'm saying you know what job description you're just not meeting it all right, you're fired. Donald Trump, you're fired. Go home. It's all over. But no, God is very gracious, very willing to put up with us, which is really the point of what's going on here. So he says, if you'll save Israel by my hand, as you have said, God, if, you're, if you haven't lied to me, is the insinuation. Right? So now he's accusing God of being a liar, and God is putting up with it. But if you're going to do that, 
Well, then I'm laying a fleece of wool on the, fleshing, on the threshing floor. And if there's dew on the fleece alone and it's dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. And it was so. And when he rose early in the morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung out enough dew from the fleece to fill the bowl of water. Isn't God gracious? God does this miraculous sign for him. Now we're up to 11. And at this point, even Gideon knows he's pushing the envelope. Listen to the language. Then Gideon said to God, okay, don't be mad. All right, he knows God's been pushed. Let not your anger burn against me, okay? Let me speak just once more. Please, let me test just once more with the fleece, please. Let it be on the dry fleece only and on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night and it was dry on the fleece only and all the ground there was dew. Why do we take God's concession to a faithless and weak man after ten previous signs and say, oh, this is the method by which we should determine the will of God. I'll put a fleece out. Wrong. Wrong. That's not at all what should have been going on if he had believed what God had said at the beginning. You see, the fleece was not a methodology taught for us. The fleece was a sign of how willing God is to put up with us in our weakness and faithlessness. So don't make that somehow the means whereby you divine God's will. Because he's saying this is not a good example of how to find God's will. This is a bad example of how poorly an individual believed and yet how willing God is to deal with us even in our weakness. See, the fleece and the sign and the omen was not the direction. God is just gracious. But we don't turn that now into some superstitious means of always determining the will of God. And let me go with that in this whole area and say, please do not automatically assume that a sense of peace means all is well in the decisions you're making or that a sense of agitation means all is wrong. We read those things and we say, that must be it. If that's so, then when Jesus was agonizing in the garden, he should have been saying, oh, this is terrible. I shouldn't go to the cross. I don't feel very much peace about this. I'm praying that the the Father's will be done and not mine. You see, how we put the wrong slant on that. Or the angelic appearances. Every time in the New Testament when the angel appears, people fall on their face and they have to be comforted and told, fear not. Was it because the angel was doing something wrong? Should they have said, well, there's no peace in my heart. This must not be a manifestation from God. And at the same time, Paul, when he's in Athens, is deeply disturbed by what he sees. And that is, in fact, the spirit of God working in him that he's disturbed. But if we automatically assign these categories arbitrarily and then use them supernaturally, we're ignoring God's word and putting something above it, you see. So he calls us to a, a different way. I suppose the, the maxim in all of this would simply be that the Spirit always leads us into holiness and never sin or into a contradiction with His revealed will. If you want to know where the Spirit's leading, He's leading you into holiness and never into sin, and never into a contradiction with His revealed will. Never. And you don't have to think twice about that. That's reality. 
The Spirit brings to remembrance, Jesus tells us in John 14, 26. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you, but what will He teach you? And bring to your remembrance all things that I've already said to you. He brings His illuminating power to the Word so that we understand what its teaching is. Or in 1 Corinthians 2.12, Now we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. And what does He bring? What's He after? That we might understand the things freely given to us by God. That which He's opened up and, and placed in front of us and that which is for us. Fleeces, omens, and signs. Be careful. God is really guarding us from superstition by helping us understand we need to understand his word and to function within the parameters that he's given us there. Our eighth one is to test everything. And this is gloriously generous, is that he's equipped us with a means to test all these things. Isaiah 8.20, which I brought out a few weeks ago and then Dan came back and revisited so ably while I was gone, to the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it's not because they're mistaken. It's because they have no light in them, no dawn. It's a pretty hefty charge. So he's bringing us back and saying, well, test everything by, by this. And if it cannot be tested... Act very cautiously, very cautiously. 1 Corinthians 14 shows us this in, in wonderful relief. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where Paul's dealing with spiritual gifts. Um, I believe in all of the gifts of the Spirit, and I believe they're all active and functioning today. But I also believe that they are to be managed scripturally and not the way that we, we just go by feeling, that those things are to be governed according to God's word and in the, the right way. But look at his discussion of this as you get down to the end of chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, verse 26, and we won't go into the uh, controversial parts of this, but the main thought, oh, what then, brothers? It's a conclusion from what he said above. When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Well, here's the first thing to consider. Let all things be done for building up, not for puffing up. Can what I do or what I'm about to say or whatever really contribute to others? Or is it just because I want to hear my voice? Because I I need to, to get my two bits in so that I'll be thought of as spiritual. So the the first thought is love. Let things be done for the building up. And then he gives practical examples that would have worked really well in the Corinthian church if anyone speak in a tongue. Well, let's put some limits on it. Let there be only two or at the most three. And then not all together, but each in turn. How often is that governed in assemblies today where people would hold to the gifts of the Spirit? Very, very often it's not. But this is how it's meant to be managed. And then let someone interpret it. And if they're not going to interpret it, then don't do it. Verse 28, if there's no one to interpret, let each one of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. We we don't need this. And then he goes and he ratchets it up even further. Well, let two or three prophets speak, but don't just take what's done and verbatim. And then let the others weigh what is said. Amazing. Judge it right on the spot. 
Call it for what it is. If, if it accords with God's word and brings, brings glory to the truth of the scripture and what we already know, great. Then say, let's do that. If it doesn't, if it contradicts or doesn't accord with God's word, throw it out and do that publicly. Deal with it right on the spot. Uh, that would end a lot of strange things in a hurry, wouldn't it? It puts everything in a context where it can minister to the body and doesn't become a show for people who just want to exercise their gifts. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, well, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. Is it going to help people learn truth? Will they be encouraged by it? That's the kind of prophecy that Scripture condones. And you see, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. And God's not a God of confusion, but of peace. That's how those things are, are governed. So he, he bids us even to test such things as this and to be careful and to do it carefully. It's in that context that we have that enigmatic story that we had read for us, the account in First Kings 13 of the young prophet and the old prophet. there's lots of suppositions around that passage, lots of different things that people try to bring out in the details. I don't know all of them, but to rehearse quickly, um, the the kingdom of Israel had split. Um, There had been civil war. Half the kingdom followed Solomon's son, two tribes. The other ten split off, and they were now governed by a man by the name of Jeroboam. Jeroboam was a, a ruthless man. But God prophesied to him and said, you're going to take the kingdom. So he did. And he built an altar in Bethel because the two southern tribes had Jerusalem still, had the temple. So he built his own altar in Bethel. And there they were starting to enter into um, idolatry. So this young man from Judah, from the southern kingdom, as a prophet, is called by God to go up and to confront this king, Jeroboam, on what he's doing. And he does. He comes to him and he says, Hey, this altar you're building, let me tell you, someday it's going to split open, the ashes are going to pour out, and then God's going to raise up a a king by the name of Josiah, which he's going to do hundreds of years later. He's going to raise up this king Josiah, and he's actually going to kill the the false prophets and sacrifice them on this very altar that you're building. Jeroboam gets all ticked off and starts to point at him and says, Hey, get that guy. And as soon as he sends his hand out like that, it starts to wither up supernaturally. And then he cries out and says, pray for me. And the young man does. And God restores Jeroboam's hand. Jeroboam's a wicked man. You you read his account. But God was still gracious. When people repented, even if they were really not good people, he was so gracious. Well, then that young man leaves. And as he's leaving, there were a couple of observers to all this. And their dad was a retired prophet. He was living down at the prophet arms, you know, not far away. And so he was down there, and, and, and the two boys, they run down, and they tell their dad, hey, man, you should have been there today. Woohoo! what a show. This young guy shows up, and, and Jeroboam sticks his hand out, and it withers, and then he prays, and it's restored, and wow, I mean, the, the, the altar split open, ashes spilled out, and then there's this prophecy about Josiah. And so the dad says, well, where'd he go? And he said, well, no, he took off. And he said, well, go find him. Saddle a donkey for me. I'll go find him. And so he runs off and he finds this guy and this guy's sitting under a tree. And he says, hey, come on back to my house, man. We, we need to talk. Come on back and let's have something to eat. My kind of prophet. 
And uh, so he says, so let's do this. And so he goes back. And, and he says, no, I can't. He said, God told me specifically that when I came here, I was not to go back the way I came. I was not to stop and greet anybody. And I was not to have anything to eat or drink. I can't do that. And then the old prophet lies to him. He's testing him. Testing's not always ugly. It's not always wrong. Sometimes testing is, is really necessary. When I was in, in sales, we had a particular line of ovens that I used to sell for restaurants. And it was built like a battleship. And so the way I would prove that to people is I would pull the oven door down and I would stand on that oven door. That's a lot of standing. Now, nobody's ever going to stand on that oven door. It made absolutely no sense other than it looked great. You know, everybody was really impressed. Ooh, you know, it holds him up. Man, it must be a great stove. It didn't matter. They didn't even know if the thing would cook. But, but it would hold me, so it must, must be worth it. I sold a lot of ovens that way. Every time I stood on that door, I was proud of that oven. I tested it. I wasn't trying to break it. I wasn't trying to hurt it. I was trying to show off how good it was. That's often how God tests us. He isn't trying to hurt us. But he's trying to show this is mine, and, and this is how good it is. It'll stand the test. Anyway, this prophet, the older prophet, lies to him. He says, no, well, God told me to come out and get you and take you back to my house. And the kid, the kid balks. He says, okay. He goes back to the old prophet's house, and they're sitting down, they're eating and drinking, and the prophet said, I've got news for you. You didn't obey the word of the Lord when you came back with me. And you're not going to be buried in your dad's grave. Terrible things are going to happen. The young prophet, we don't read that he repents or confesses of his sin. We don't know what he did. But he finally did get on his donkey and ride off. And soon, soon enough, he's attacked by a lion and he's killed and his body's left in the road. The old man goes and gets that body eventually, buries it, and then tells his sons, when, when I die, throw me in that same grave. Because i got news for you. What he prophesied, he prophesied accurately. It's going to come to pass. What God said is, is going to happen. I'll tell you what I wrote in the margin of my Bible, because you, you know, there's a lot of weird constructs around that whole story and where you go with it and what you do. Let me tell you what I put verbatim, what I wrote in my own Bible. And this, and this is the way I wrote it. I wrote, listen to what God says. Listen to what God says. Listen to what God says. No matter what anyone else says, no matter who says anything else listen to what god says this is what you are responsible for read what god has said listen to what god says that's what i'm saying in this entire series listen to what god has said that's that's the that's the end of this well let me give you some practical things and we're close the process i promised i'd do that early on And the process of decision-making for the Christian, because we are Christ's and because he shepherds us, is really wonderfully simple in most cases. And and it's rooted really in asking yourself a couple of quick questions. Is Is what I'm about to do, what I'm about to choose, will it prevent or hinder me from doing anything that God has expressly commanded in his scripture? I'm going to make a choice here, and does it have any impact 
on what God has expressly commanded me to do in his scripture? Or the second question, will my choice cause me to do anything that God expressly forbids me from doing in his scripture? Is it going to prevent me from obeying or cause me to disobey? That's the, those are the two questions I need to ask first. The third, have I weighed the pros and cons and am I using my best wisdom as God has called me to? And I'm going to add a, a sub one to that. If you're married, you should find out what your spouse thinks. When you got married, you gave up the right to make unilateral decisions. You are now one. And you need, to, you need to be on the same page. And then lastly, make the choice that seems most in keeping with sound wisdom, if it hasn't violated your first couple questions, and commit it to the Lord, being willing to have him change the outcome if he wants to. And then live in freedom. Don't live all bound up trying to, trying to pluck something out of the sky that you don't need to know. It's not mysterious. It's not going to cause me to, to violate anything God has called me to do in, in his scripture. It's not going to cause me to, to be held back from doing anything that he's called me to do in his scripture. I've weighed the pros and cons. This seems like a, a wise decision. Lord, I'm going to commit it to you. Pray about it. Give it to him and, and do it. Are you going to make some mistakes? Sure. And God will use them. God will, God will walk you through them and use them and bless them, and, and it'll be extraordinary. You'll learn, and it'll be wonderful. But you can be free because you see your shepherd is your shepherd, and he won't forsake you. So he says, you stick to the basic things I've revealed to you. It's okay. Go ahead and live life. You can, you can do things. And, and don't be all bound up. That Don Kistler, you all know Don Kistler. Hoping to get him up here later in the year. Don Kistler told me um, a thing about when he was, he was single and he was uh, dating this gal. And he went on a date with her and he really liked her. And so he, he uh, said to her at the end of the night, you know, I'd really like to, to go out with you again. And she said, oh, well, I'm waiting for God's best. <laughs> woo. You know, just woo. Like that, you know. And he says, what am I, chopped liver? You know, what do you mean you're waiting for God's best? We'll we'll come back to why that's important in a second. But bottom line was, we'll we'll get to where we spiritualize all our answers if we're not not careful. Make the choice. Go ahead. Dude, God is so gracious and so willing. And if if we've obeyed the basic constructs of his word, we have wonderful freedom to do things. I can tell you that I did not always live in that freedom. And I can tell you that it's much better on the other side. It really is. Now, let me give you some helpful hints. I'm going to run through these very rapidly. I think I've got... It says six Fs. There aren't. There's seven. I lied. And I call them the six Fs, the seven Fs, uh, because these are more out of experience in working through the Word and how this functions. The first thing is, do not make decisions out of fear rather than faith. Do not make decisions out of fear rather than faith. Fear is a lousy motivator, at least human fear. It's not the way God works with us. And this often manifests itself in things like spiritualizing to cover up a lack of courage or to justify your decision. This young lady who talked to Don Kistler. Now, I would have advised her she needed to wait for God's best too. But the... uh, No. The... What she was doing was she was spiritualizing so that her answer could not be challenged. So we often do that. 
Oh, would you help us do such and such in the church? Well, I don't feel led. Because if you spiritualize it, you see, nobody can challenge it. Can I tell you how the Scripture deals with that differently? The Scripture deals with that in an amazing way. 1 Corinthians 16, 12. This is a fascinating verse if you ever get time to spend on it. This is Paul writing to the Corinthian church. And he says, now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers. But he didn't feel led. No. He states it just the way Apollos responded to him. But it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. You would have thought Apollos would have spiritualized it. Well, God hasn't spoken to me. I'm not sure. No, he just said, you know what? I don't want to do that right now. I've got some other things I need to take care of. I'll go there and I'll do it when I get a chance. But see, we're afraid to be honest with each other. And we're afraid to take the fallout from actually making the decision. So what we'll do is we'll cower in fear of man and we'll spiritualize the answer. Don't spiritualize the answer. Just be honest. I don't want to do that. Okay, I can deal with that. And I can challenge that. It's great. But don't, don't make your decisions, especially major decisions, out of fear rather than out of faith. Secondly, don't make major decisions when you are fatigued. It's a bad time to make decisions. When we're physically tired or in a state of discouragement or distraction, we are prone to make really bad decisions. You get this played out for you in spades in the life of Elijah. He goes up on Mount Carmel. He goes through this traumatic experience. He hacks into pieces 850 prophets of Baal. Note it's 850. There's one case of 400 and one case of 450. Does, I mean, it's a traumatic scene. You, know, you, you don't hack 850 people to death and come away thinking, oh, this was a fun afternoon. It was an ugly scene. And it was traumatic, the whole thing. And then he runs, and he's supernaturally enabled to outrun the, the chariot, and he's out in the field. And when he gets down to the end, he gets this note from Jezebel. She says, if you're alive by tomorrow, Oh man, then I'm, you know, my gods aren't gods. And, and he gets scared and finally finds himself collapsed on the ground. And God says, you know what you need? You need to sleep and you need to eat. God does that with me all the time. I had that urge early this morning. You need to sleep and you need to eat. I knew it was God. Um, he says, you, and, and, you know, because God comes to him and he says, what's the deal? And he says, oh, I'm the only one left in all of Israel. You're just fatigued. You're just tired. You're not the only one left. God deals with him later. He gets him to the cave. He lets him rest some more. And then he comes and asks him the same question. He says the same thing. I'm the only one left in all of Israel. <laughs> it's terrible. And God says, no, no, I got, I got thousands who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Really? You're okay. And, and you need to go and you need to anoint your successor. There's still things to be done. Don't give up now. We've got, we got work to do. And, and God restores him and gets him up. But, but if he had just dealt on that, that one moment when he was just so fatigued and so tired and so scared, he would have just given up. And we will too. Don't make major decisions when, when you're in that state. Get some rest. Third, don't make major decisions solely by feeling. Again, I'm not discounting feelings. Feelings are real, and they're given to us by God. But what they are is an indicator of what we think. So use that to find out what it is that you're thinking, and then bring that before the Lord. But don't just act on the feeling, because the feeling might be right. It might be wrong. You might be reading things into it. Don't, don't go there. Look at your feelings, but analyze them, suspect them, test them, according to the Word of God. Fifth, or fourth, don't make decisions, major decisions, when you're still under the influence of fury. 
When you are angry, you will overshoot your decision. It's why parents often overshoot discipline for their children when they discipline them out of anger. It has to be carefully guarded in natural life. You're going to give an imbalanced answer if you only act out of anger. Yes, there's times when anger is a motivating force and we bring it under the control of the Word and of the Spirit. But if you're just furious with somebody, you're going you're to overdo. Don't make major decisions in that mindset. Fifth, do not make major decisions in times of spiritual failure. If you are not walking closely with God, put the decision on hold until you get that squared away. I'll tell you why. There's two main reasons. First is, when you're walking in a backslidden or a compromising state, you're now functioning on mixed reasoning. Fleshly lusts war against the soul. And you will not reason from a spiritual base. You will reason from, from a mixed base. It's not healthy. And the second is that when you're making decisions, especially major ones, in a time of spiritual failure, our old self-idol-making uh, ability in us can often cause us to act in extremes in trying to do penance. Making lots of decisions is an act of penance. Okay, God, you know, get me out of this. I'm finally getting my life restored, whatever. I promise I'm going to read 100 chapters a day. I'm going to pray four hours a day. I'm going to... And, of course, you're not going to keep that. And there's other passages of Scripture that tell you why such a thing is, is not pleasing before the Lord. But don't do that when you're in that condition. Re- get restored. Get put back in a, in a good place. Sixth, don't make major decisions by forecasting the final future based upon present transient circumstances. This is big. Do not make major decisions by forecasting the final future based upon present transient circumstances. I'm going to be real sexist for about two minutes. This is, this is one of those places where young ladies especially have a problem. I'm 20 and I'm not married. I'm never going to be married. See, the never is a final forecast of what is a present transient circumstance. And as soon as you do that, you put yourself in all kinds of places where you can't function properly. Decisions you can't make well. We don't do that. I, um, when, when, uh, I was at Faith Temple for a couple of years, and uh, uh, Bill Wilson, his first wife, passed away, and he married Mary uh, Campbell, became Mary Campbell Wilson, who had been the president, the, the uh, principal of Zion Bible Institute. She was 64 when they got married, her first marriage. And when she was 60, I remembered her recounting this uh, for me once. We were talking. She said, I was on an airplane. I'm flying from someplace to someplace. She goes, here I am, the 62-year-old woman on this airplane, and I'm looking at my Bible and a bunch of papers. And the person next to her said, uh, well, what do you do? She said, I had to think about that for a minute. She said, I, I suppose I'm a Protestant nun. That's the only thing she could come up with. <laughs> I thought it was absolutely hysterical. But she said, that's, that's, you know, that's probably the closest thing you can identify with. All right, I'm, I'm Protestant, but I've never been married. I've given my, my life to the church. But she was pretty sure she would never get married. And then at 64, she marries Bill Wilson. She just passed away last week at the age of 92. Served God all those years. Don't, don't forecast out into the future and then, and then make your major decisions 
of a final future based upon present transient circumstances. And then lastly, so simple, so just reality, don't forget to pray. (laughs) Don't forget to bring all these things before the throne of grace and commit them into the Father's hands and trust Him. Christ is your shepherd. You shall not want. (laughs) He, He loves His people. He guards his people. He keeps his people. And, and when we pay attention to the, the basics, oh, how he gives us freedom and a wonderful way to live life in joy and peace and not all bound up with, oh, boy, I hope I've really discerned the secret mind of God for something out there. I just don't need to do that. I need to be busy with what he's given me and be about that work and be at ease. And watch how he guides. Watch how he directs. Watch how the Holy Spirit leads through promptings and impulses you didn't even know you had that will be proved out later that, that weren't done by seeking some, you know. We don't live, I, I used this in the first, first service, let me use it here. We don't live by the woo-woo. Woo-woo. That isn't where we live. We live by the Word. And watch how the Spirit works and, and guards our lives. Father, I thank you so much for the practical, bountiful, joyous way that you uh, speak to us. And uh, how truly condescending you are. I, I look at that passage with Gideon and I say, Oh God, how patient you have been with me. I have been that man with that fleece more times than I can count. And how faithful you are. How willing you are. How you extend yourself for us. But I pray that we would learn to walk in a more mature way, trusting you, believing you, taking in your word, and and then watching how you govern this universe in your marvelous sovereign providence and how at ease we can be with that. I pray that your people will be freed from uh, the tyranny of the mysterious and of the superstitious and of of all those things, that we might walk openly, joyously, freely, wonderfully before you as we carry out the things that you've called us to in your word in our lifetime. Bless bless them and seal them to our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.